feel about watching Netflix with ads? Because this week on Download This Show, that is a thing that might be coming very soon. Also on the show, just how many fake followers are on Twitter? And will it be enough to stop billionaire Elon Musk from taking over the social media company? We also talk about a crash of cryptocurrencies and a much-loved piece of technology is about to be killed off. What is it? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. It's lovely to be back. I've missed you. It's been a minute. I've been off for, uh, you know, I don't even know how many, many weeks it's been, but it's lovely to be back. And we have on the panel this week, uh, creative technologist at Joseph Mark, Jesse Hughes, joining us from sunny Hollywood. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having us. <laughs> I said it was sunny. Is it actually sunny or is that just like how it exists in my mind, Red Free? It is so sunny. <laughs> It, I've had to close the windows for this interview and it is, it's hot, it's steamy, but it's glorious. There's palm trees everywhere. Delightful. And also joining us on the show for the first time, uh, Elise Bohan is a senior research scholar at the University of Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute and the author of Future Superhuman, Our Transhuman Lives in a Make or Break Century. Elise, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Great to be here. So uh, we're going to start off this week with <laughs> just like... The, the internet's favourite supervillain, um, Elon Musk, uh, had planned, as I'm sure you will know, to buy Twitter. But what has actually happened, uh, Jesse? Is, is it still happening as of time of recording? Only time will tell. Um, I ho- Look, he, he's, he did a post, well, a, a tweet that came out where he was just curious about the amount of fake accounts that are actually on Twitter. Um, so Twitter claims that less than 5% of the users are spam or fake accounts, um, but he wants to run the numbers, he wants to just double-check for that famous $44 billion deal which had been kind of proposed um, a little while back. So we're talking big, big cash, and so I think he wants to just make sure that he is buying what they say he's getting. <laughs> so I, I say this advisedly because I'm sure this story will change 11 million times between now when we're recording <laughs> and when this goes out on the internet for people to listen to but the whole point about there being fake users on Twitter at least like how many fake users are there actually on Twitter is it even possible to know well I think this is one of the driving questions behind putting the deal on hold right um, obviously it's a really important calculation because it does affect the the valuation of the company and you know as Elon's sort of leading point is if we're massively overcounting users, then we're giving false estimates back to our advertisers about the value that they're getting or the bang for the buck. So it is a calculation that matters, but you know, underlying that is a lot of speculation about the strategy and is this is this an attempt to sort of put the deal on hold or back out of it? I really doubt that. I think Elon is not one to go in guns blazing and back down. But yeah, in terms of how do we how do we count users, there's contention over well, can you externally estimate it? Or does this have to be an internal estimate estimate within Twitter itself? And there's a lot of back and forth going on about that. But, yeah, I, I tend to err on the side of Elon that you can sort of do some reasonable calculations externally and that we should be, like, holding both methodologies to account and trying to 
trying to figure out as accurately as possible what's really going on. Yeah, I mean, I for one would be particularly interested to know how many fake users there actually are on Twitter. But I guess the <laughs> other question here, uh, Steph, is is this just an elaborate form of negging? Like, is this an elaborate form of, of pushing down Twitter's, I guess, value by saying, hey, I mean, yeah, there's all these people on it, but we don't know how many of them are real. We don't know how many of them are bots. Is, is that potentially the strategy that sits underneath this, uh, Jesse? Well, I mean, the share price plunged, I think it was about 10% or something like that after this tweet went out. Like, like if Elon Musk does a tweet and just, the stock market just goes berserk. So, yeah, it'll be interesting whether uh, whether this was a whole it, – it, it's nice for the whole villain narrative. But, look, I don't – I just think he's a clever – he's a clever guy, obviously. He's a very, very smart dude. So we will just wait and see how it turns out. I think someone is – powerful being in a position like yeah having owning owning twitter was just the phenomenal the the impact so i think he i think yeah like we just mentioned i don't think you come up with a proposal like this only to back out of it like it might just be a time play and we'll just have to wait and see exactly what's going on but if you were going to drop 44 billion i think you want to be pretty certain on what you're buying (laughs) I mean, just looking obviously from the outside as we are, it does appear that there is some kind of power tussle involved in Elon potentially taking over Twitter. And mm. and actions like this, at least again from the outside, Elise, would seem like an opportunity to kind of exert control from outside. Even if what he's saying is reasonable, even if what he's saying is mm. is true, it would seem like this is a a method of, of, of kind of controlling Twitter from outside. At least that's the impression I get, Elise. But tell me if I'm wrong. Well, perhaps. I think it's it's very tempting with anything involving somebody like Elon Musk to play into the kind of supervillain vibe of somebody who is into this arch control of the world. Particularly, you know, we love to hate billionaires, or at least a good chunk of people love <laughs> to hate billionaires. And so this, this idea that someone is like very clever and very manipulative and kind of cackling in an armchair somewhere because he's like manipulating it on this granular level. I think if we really looked at the machinations of a lot of giant corporate deals, which are not covered in the media and they don't have huge personalities associated with them, we would see people on both sides of the deal doing absolutely everything they could to get the most value for themselves. Like everybody's operating in a self-interested fashion. And this is just one strategic play that from Camp Elon Mm. makes sense and it's something that I'd expect a deal that wasn't covered so publicly to involve as well. It doesn't hurt that in my mind when he tweets he's sitting in a giant egg chair stroking a white cat and like the succession theme <laughs> plays in the background like I'll, I'm not gonna lie like that that's how it exists in in my mind is that is that a fair interpretation to you Jesse you think that um that maybe if we paid this kind of attention to other kinds of corporate deals we'd see exactly the same if not more kinds of uh of strategizing. I mean, potentially. Look, we've got the, he's the richest guy in the world, right? So you've got the richest guy in the world trying to have what is the most influential platforms there is. Like, yeah, look, your your, your idea looks good. <laughs> it looks good on screen. I mean, <laughs> I can't remember that famous line from Austin Powers, but the numbers that we're talking about, I don't think even Austin Powers could cover the, like, 44 billion in that scene. Elise, is there a scenario you can see in the future where where Elon is good for Twitter? He makes Twitter a better service. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly the narrative he's spruiking. And I think we, we absolutely have to concede that that's plausible. 
Um, everything that he's saying on paper, when it's, you know, guns blazing in terms of I, I'm championing free speech, I'm a free speech absolutist, I want to create a town hall in which we're not banning, censoring and deplatforming, in which mm. the laws of the country are what we default to rather than extending beyond the laws of nation states. You know, additionally, he wants, you know, it, apart from the shareholder, like the, the share valuation of the company, it's counting bots is also playing into the, the stated aim of authenticating users. And that plays into trying to build a digital town hall, which is something that at scale is totally new for humanity. We are not used to conducting this 24-hour news cycle-induced rapid trigger-happy discourse where we are constantly debating everything at the click of a button online in rapid-fire fashion. Mm. And as we start to bring the last remaining billions of the global population online, we know that this is going to continue to scale up and become more of a phenomenon in which we're more enmeshed in digital and virtual existences. So he's road testing the first major iteration of it. And on paper, absolutely everything he is saying as a stated aim makes sense. Of course, we don't want to succumb to the, the tech bro fantasy of like everything God Elon says is gospel and will play out in a totally idealistic fashion. It's as we've seen with Tesla and you know other things with self-driving cars, getting that last ten percent right of getting everything to fully function as per the ideal is really really hard, and I think he knows that. This is like the aspirations on paper absolutely could make Twitter a much better place and digital democracy much better for us all, but realistically, yeah, there's going to be teething problems. Yeah, there's going to be unexpected consequences as you start to make tweaks to this giant complex system. So it'll be fascinating to see how it plays out. And of course, he's going to cop enormous flack for anything that doesn't go to plan. But on paper, somebody had to do something like this. And it'll be a great experiment to run however it plays out. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Mark Fennell is my name. Our guest this week, Elise Bohan, is the author of Future Superhuman, Our Transhuman Lives in a Make or Break Century. Our other guest this week is creative technologist at Joseph Mark, Jesse Hughes. Uh, Mark Fennell is my name. And uh, you might be seeing ads on Netflix really soon, but why? Well, let's find out. Uh, Jesse, why is uh, Netflix experimenting with a new ad-supported tier? Well, I think we're all very uh, aware to the streaming battles that are going on at the moment. Um, we seem to just be overwhelmed with possibilities from different streamers. And so Netflix have unfortunately been losing a whole bunch of subscribers. So they're down over 200,000 subscribers. And so I think, you know, they're trying to figure out ways to deal with that loss of funds and potentially ads, ads are the way to do it. The other alternative option of what this means is it can be cheaper Hulu offers this, but it can be cheaper if I have, say, accept ads, then it can be $11 a month instead of, say, $15 a month for if you don't want the ads. So I think everyone's just trying to deal with the over the overdose of streamers and how, how they can lead again at the top of the pack. Why have they lost so many subscribers? Oh, I think it all comes down to content, doesn't it? Um, we've seen the rise of, say, Disney Plus. We've got Paramount. We've got Stan. We've got Hulu. I've just moved to the States, so now I get a whole other, you know, giant plethora of options. And I think when you have that much content spread out in so many ways, 
it's making you question who is going to get you $15 a month. Because if you, if you have multiple stream, if you have multiple subscriptions, that can be 30, $45 a month to have three different platforms. So I think, um, people are just getting more selective with who and where they're putting that money. And this, it just seems like a battle at the moment. They're all trying to do it. Um, but there is a bit of initiatives, I think, because because Netflix announced earlier this year they were going to do some stuff with gaming. So potentially, like they're trying to do a pivot and trying to have interactive narratives, which um, we haven't seen that many examples. There have been some really cool ones, um, but yeah, there's, there's there's just some really interesting stuff happening um, with all of these streamers putting out amazing content, <laughs> and it's down to down to the viewers to decide where is the best content and it changes month to month. I think we're seeing really interesting strategies of um, advertising from the streamers themselves about, you know, trying to lure lure you to theirs because you're not, a lot of people seem to be jumping as well or they'll sign up for, to to watch a show that they want to watch and then cancel that subscription by the end of the month and then jump to a different streamer to see that that show that they want to watch. So, um, yeah, a lot of jumping around, um, but potentially the ad-based model would mean a cheaper subscription um, for users and therefore you could just have maybe like have your $10 Netflix one just as the background and then maybe you'll splash out and have a Disney as well or you might have a HBO as well. Yeah, it's interesting. Literally, as you were talking, I, I got sent an email from Disney Plus announcing all of their new Australian shows, <laughs> which I think tells you a little bit Yay. about that. Um, actually, um, Elise, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that, that gaming thing that Jesse just mentioned there. Uh, the idea of gaming coming to Netflix, I think it's been talked about for a long time. I guess once you have a subscription, if there are games you want to play, it'll work. But do you think people will... Do you think it'll be the sort of thing that actually keeps people on a platform? If there are games that they want to return to day in, day out, is that the sort of thing that would would stop you from cancelling? Potentially. Um, it's another play to increase their user base and they just try to explore all the options that are available to them. But, of course, you're entering another market there, so you have to compete with existing platforms that have very large and dedicated user bases so it's just one one option among many that they're exploring. But my intuition is that I don't have a strong sense that that's really going to keep a lot of people on there for good. I think as Jesse was talking about with the plethora of options that we have, it feeds into a world in which we are more driven by instant gratification. And so switching up between options and in in essence not being particularly loyal to to brands when a better deal comes along uh, means that they're up against it with all these strategic challenges as they scale as an organisation. Jesse, one of the things that has sort of happened in the lead up to this is uh, there's been some announcements about Netflix clamping down on people sharing passwords between friends and family. Do you think that's likely had an impact on people deciding whether or not they're going to keep or kill their Netflix subscription? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, like, if, if you look at a household, maybe uh, my brother might be paying for Netflix, I might be playing for Hulu, someone else might be paying for Stan. It's like, you know, and my family will just kind of log in on these different ones and, um, you know, have that access. But then the other day I stayed in an Airbnb and somebody's somebody had just left their Netflix login in, in <laughs> on that Airbnb. And so I was watching this, um, this person's account. So I think maybe that password accessibility or, or frequency, maybe they might be like, can you you know, put in your password every few times that you log in or something like that, that might be a better way of actually confirming that the real user is using 
their kind of access maybe um but it was i also read recently interesting that netflix had this like blog strategy called to dumb like as the on a on for that sound when you open the app you gotta, um, you gotta do it with the proper was, to dum, you gotta do it like the, the beginning of the, the movie the tv show yeah yeah this is what the promo is going to be just us attempting that sound yeah god i clearly haven't been listening i mean yeah but (laughs) um they they had this kind of like blog coming out and i had a look at it and it was kind of articles about shows that they were releasing so i think in terms of like press and media and actually like a lot of my intrigue of things that i'm going to watch these days comes from advertising on instagram for Mm. me so it like does a lot of targeted ads through instagram it'll be like a really quick teaser. So depending on whether my Instagram feed is just going to be fed of different streamers competing through that way or you drive around LA, obviously you've got a bunch of billboards advertising different stuff, but it will always say which you know wh- which streamer is releasing this. And that kind of builds up this hype of, oh, I've got to get a thingy subscription so that I can watch this. Yeah, so we'll, we'll – and the other thing is to talk about like uh, globe – Netflix has global distribution, and whereas – or but every country has their own little thing. But um, stuff like like Stan's Australia streamer pretty much, and you have um, Hulu and HBO. So depending on which country you're in is then also all this like geo-restricted content. So <laughs> if you're a traveler like you and I, Mark, <laughs> um, that kind of affects the subscriptions that you have and which ones you're allowed to access and all of that. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture and devastating news, horrific, devastating news, Elise. Apple are considering discontinuing the iPod. Heartbroken. I'm heartbroken, Elise. Uh, also, why is it taking them so long? <laughs> it's a good question, and I share your heartbreak. I still remember the first iPods coming along on off the bat of years of Discmans and Walkmans in early high school, and it was like, Instead of 12 songs on a CD, there were these early MP3 players that could maybe fit an album on it. And once the iPod came along, it was like total game changer. The whole user interface was different. It just, it felt like the future was coming. (laughs) And I think there's nostalgia for for that time and um, for the excitement of a product like that. So, yeah, it's it's sad to see it go, but I think it is an indicator uh, that we're really only talking a span of 10, 15 years here of how quickly a totally game-changing product goes into a state of pure obsolescence. Mm. Obviously, like, it has to happen. We can't keep supporting antiquated technology with really no user base in perpetuity. But if you compare it to the the lifespan that things like records and CDs had, particularly like long play records, it took them a long time to really peter out into almost true obsolescence, but they're still hanging on now in a really niche market. Whereas this was an explosion onto the scene and then very quickly fading into to complete obsolescence. Mm. Fascinating stuff. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even if you took uh, talk most like about the industrial design of that, and then you look at our iPhones, which are just a staple of every living day of life. Like I look at my phone more than I look at a human. So <laughs> I think if you look at the, the all the humans the in your life are just like, oh, I hate her. 
You'd be like, damn, cool, yeah. <laughs> um, but you look at this amazing product design and I think um, we just had this personal device and it had an amazing time. And now now we have the iPhone, so it's like, well, why? I, I get why they've got rid of it. But the timing's hella off because the naughties are so in right now. Like, we've got, they're so trendy, you know what I mean? Like, I if I could walk around with a little crop top, very, like, low-waisted jeans and an iPod, like, that is so hot right now. <laughs> so I think they've picked the wrong time to bounce out. Like, one of these things would sell for, sell for a lot on eBay these days, I think. <laughs> Um, fine so long as cargo pants don't like properly come back in. Oh, I want them, man. No, no. I know, like the streaked hair and stuff. Yes. No. Can we just <laughs> do like actually, things yeah. of the naughties that don't need to come back? At least you want to get down. Are there things from the naughties like the iPad that don't need to come back for you? Oh, gosh. <laughs> um, probably Evanescence the Band would be one. Yep, yep. I'm going to co-sign that. Evanescence doesn't need to come back. We're good without. And the whole emo movement. Um, No, guys, you're all wrong. You're both wrong. (laughs) We're we're bringing it back. We're all bringing it back. Um, But actually, something my friend mentioned, which I thought was quite interesting, they said about the AirPods is worth an estimated $240 billion, where Netflix is only slightly ahead of that at $260 billion. So we're talking about evolution of technology. I mean, I'm speaking in AirPods right now. Like, so I'm, these aren't the same device, but we are talking about similar stuff with music and the way music's evolved to now I have a wearable, I mean, I think consider the iPod a wearable almost, but ne- like it's just these, ne- these new evolutions. And so, yeah, as we move forward, stuff's got to be left behind and I'm so sad that it's the iPod. Like, sorry, guys. <laughs> so as we play the funeral dirge for the iPod, what do you think, Elise, yes. the legacy should be? What do you think, how has the world changed because of it? Well, I think it was the precursor in terms of user experience design to the iPhone in many ways. And it primed us. It primed us to gently go into a world where suddenly we are carrying these things in our pockets that can compress all these things that big, bulky products and players used to do. Uh, And in the iPhone, that's gone not just from music, but to alarm clocks and pocket calculators and notebooks and even desktop computers to some extent. So it was an important evolution, a social primer for a new phase in human portability and communication. But, yeah, uh, I I will be kind of sadly nostalgic for that era as, as it fades. Jesse, there were competitors, right? There were competitors before the iPod, there were competitors during and I guess afterwards. I mean, Microsoft had the Zune famously. What became of those? Like, wh- why didn't they necessarily capture the imagination the way that Apple... Is it just because Apple's marketing machine is really powerful and, and knows how to cut through? Or is there something else about it that, that made it the more long-lasting of the products? Number one, it's a super sexy device. <laughs> um, I think they had amazing marketing. I still remember the posters of like the dancing silhouettes and the bright colors. Um, but it was more about just the way they were able to have the the media, so music. And then I think we talk about Apple Music and the way the two devices just spoke seamlessly to each other. Before that, like I think we used to have, well, I used to have LimeWire and, you know, you're downloading torrenting music of this thing to put on my crappy little MP3 that could hold 30 songs. And then the iPod came out and we had this user interface that was really easy to use with the, the shuffle, like with a 
the swirl. I still like to remember the texture of like swirling that little circle thing. And then I plug it into a computer and immediately it would just seamlessly open up Apple Music and kind of work in a way that was easy. So I think Apple Apple just does a phenomenal job of making making things easy. And that's why they win time and time and time again. Mm. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the world of media, technology and culture. Mark Fennell is my name. And you might have seen the news that there's been a massive tumble in the value of uh, of various cryptocurrencies, of course, digital currencies that exist primarily online. You access them via digital wallets. The question is why, and particularly the tumble in what they sometimes refer to as stable coins, coins that are supposed to be a little bit more reliable, but at least why? Why has there been this massive tumble in uh, in cryptocurrencies? Well, it's an incredibly volatile market, an incredibly volatile asset class. This is not the first, nor will it be the last crypto tumble. It's also a market that is prone to incredible amounts of manipulation. You have whales, as they're kind of referred to, who kind of pump and dump the market a lot, and they will manipulate the price significantly. Um, When we're sort of talking about this particular coin that's crashed and wiped off incredible amounts of value from the market, that always kind of leads to a reactionary panic in the media of, right, is crypto dead? Can we all like dance on its grave? Is it all finished? And, you know, we, we certainly haven't seen the last of this. We're going to see incredible volatile swings in across crypto markets to come. Um, but yeah, the larger debate, of course, pertains to where is this all going in terms of a new form of digital currency? Can it be stable? Can it compete with fiat currency? A lot of those questions are yet to be answered, but it'll be really interesting to see how it plays out. I guess one of the things that's most surprising to me about this is that, like, obviously there are cryptocurrencies that are that are designed to be sort of roller coasters. They go up in value, they go down in value. It's it's all about kind of picking your moment and picking your coin. But then there's these coins that you know they're, they're called stable coins, and in particular, there's one called Terra USD. And the whole point is that it's supposed to be tethered to the value of the US dollar. It's supposed to be reliable, and yet it's fallen through the floor. At least, does does that just as a as a user, does that not make you more concerned about it as a category? Well, to be clear, I am not a user of (laughs) TerraCoin. It does, but I mean, I'm not at all surprised to see that happen. I mean, we've seen coins like Tether vacillate around the, the one US dollar mark and, you know, not crashes of this extent, but they do fluctuate and they're not perfectly pegged to the US dollar. And the kind of promise that this will be a stable store of value, um, that therefore we're kind of through that promise driving the incentive to pull markets out of uh, to to pull cash out of existing markets where you know your return on investment uh, is is not great, and go okay, there's this more stable alternative. Um, bring all your money over to the crypto domain. The kind of the promises of the crypto universe at large have seemed very oversold to me for a long time. And I think this really highlights that the kind of crypto maximalists, they don't really have a good explanation when they're, when they're very excitedly telling you this is the future and you don't understand and it's, it's, it's so much more secure and it's, it don't, you've got this distributed ledger so it's all great and it's all going to be fine. When you really break that down and you're like, can you actually explain to me why this is this is stable, why this is going to be the future, why this is providing something that existing cash markets cannot provide? Other than crime, 
there usually isn't a very good answer to that. And I tend to think about crypto in terms of kind of like paraphrasing Richard Feynman uh, when he was talking about quantum mechanics. If you think you understand crypto, you don't understand crypto. And I'm the first person to say, I don't get it. Most of it, most of the intricacies beyond buzzwords like blockchain and distributed ledger and digital and the future, on a, on a really technical level, does anyone, even, even people with some really good computing understanding, do they really in an intricate way understand the complex system they're playing with? I've yet to see evidence that they do. All right. That is unfortunately all we have time for on the program this week. Huge thank you to Elise Bohan, Senior Research Scholar at the University of Oxford's Future of Humanity Institute and the author of Future Superhuman, Our Transhuman Lives in a Make or Break Century. Thank you so much for being on the show, Elise. Thank you so much. And Jesse Hughes, creative technologist at Joseph Mark. Always a pleasure to have you back on the show. Well, it's so good to see you. I've got to get your, your book, Elise. The book sounds great. Damn straight. And with that, I shall leave you. It's lovely to be back here in the studio to do download this show, and I'll catch you next week for another episode. Until then, goodbye.